All right, well, if you got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 1. Yes, we're still in John chapter 1. It's a long chapter. <laughs> um, as I was breaking out uh, the different ways that I'd, I'm kind of breaking up these sermons in the series, the thing I recognize is, man, John chapter 1 is a long one. Um, but anyways, uh, so we're going to be in John 1, uh, 19 through 34. Uh, last week, if you were here with us, we finished the prologue, which uh, gave us this picture of some of the main characters that we're going to focus on during the series, which is John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, John the Baptist was not the John who wrote this book. That was John the Apostle, two different men. Uh, John the Baptist, he plays kind of a, a very important role, but not a very long role when we read about him in the Gospels. And he's kind of a he's kind of a, a, an individual that honestly doesn't get talked about enough. You know, when we think about faithful servants of God and, and people that served God well and served him faithfully. And, you know, John the Baptist kind of gets forgotten and all that, but, but he very much served the Lord well, even if there's not many pages that focus on him. And then we also talked about Jesus, how he is the son of God, the Messiah. And then we got to talk about how Jesus came in the form of the flesh that we may see the glory of God through him. And so now we're kind of getting into, past the prologue, into the actual gospel of John itself. And our focus this morning is going to be John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus. And so I found it fitting this morning, the title of today's message, A Messenger of Hope, as we discuss the witness of John the Baptist. So let's set the stage. What's, what's happening at this time in the world? Well, the first is that it had been over 400 years since God spoke to his people through a prophet. 400 years. And you know what's funny is that the older that I get, the, the, the faster time goes. And I'm sure a lot of people in here can attest to that, right? When I was a kid, four hours seemed like forever. Like I remember very distinctly, because Theo did this the other day, he said something like, Daddy, it's been like five hours since I've eaten. I'm hungry. And so, and then I remember like when my mom and I would, would go around town, I'd say the same thing. I'd look at my, or whatever the clock in the car was, because I didn't have a phone or a watch then. I'd, I would say, Mom, it's been six hours since I've eaten. And so it just seemed like as a kid, it's forever. And even when I would say, all right, you know, we're not going to do this until after nap time. It was, it's always like, oh, wait, is that today? You know, it's just... Time, time moves a lot slower when you're a lot younger. Four days seems like an eternity. Four years is unheard of. But now, you know, now it's, it's, it's going by too fast. Four hours isn't enough time. Four days is right around the corner. Four weeks is school starting. And then, you know, four years goes at the blink of an eye. And it's just, it goes so fast. But can you imagine 400 years of silence? of nothing. No prophet, no message, nothing. God was silent for 400 years. And in 400 years, a lot happens. I mean, the, the history of the United States, we're not even 400 years old. 400 years is a long time and a lot of things change in 400 years. Generations upon generations of people pass away. And so in setting the stage of, of Jesus coming to this earth in this fleshly form, we have to understand it's been 400 years 
since God has sent a messenger. 400 years. And in that time, God's people have continued to be under the thumb of different ruling authorities. And this most recent one is the Roman government. And so you have, it's been 400 years since God spoke to his people through a prophet. You have God's people being under the rule of the Roman government. And then God's people had begun to uphold laws and traditions over scripture. They created groups such as the Pharisees, as we read about, as they have a lot of external righteousness, but their hearts were far from God. They were missing the point. And so many who knew scripture and the signs of the Messiah were eagerly anticipating his arrival. However, they were looking for someone mighty and powerful in their mind to deliver them from Roman oppression. They were looking for someone who would ride in on this like white stallion and with a huge army and conquer everything. That's, that's who they were looking for. But instead, they got someone far greater who would deliver them from their own brokenness in their hearts. See, Jesus didn't come to deliver us from oppressive authority or struggles we have externally. Jesus came to deliver us from the brokenness in our own hearts, from, from the darkness that lives within us to give us true, genuine hope. So this passage begins with John the Baptist being questioned by religious leaders sent by the Pharisees. See, they knew the different signs and things that would happen that would mark the beginning of the Messiah being here. But they had to do some investigating to see if what they'd hoped for so long to happen was about to come true. Because although the Pharisees in their hearts were not really in the right place, a lot of the times they still, they still hoped. They were hoping for the return of the Messiah. Now it was for the wrong reasons. But they were longing for their Savior. And here he is. So let's read John 1, 19-34. And it says this, And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Then they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They'd asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, Jesus coming toward him, or the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom, uh, he, this is he whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water and the might, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. 
Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful of the way that you broke your silence through John the Baptist and his ministry. God, we're grateful for the way that your provisions laid out, Father, he to be faithful in preparing the way for Jesus. God, we're grateful that we see this account of Jesus' baptism, not just in the Gospel of John, but in the others as well. And in Father, in each of them, we have this beautiful depiction of the Trinity at work. And Father, I just, I pray this morning as we study your text, God, that you would help us to understand John the Baptist, not as someone for us to worship, but God, for someone for us to imitate in the way that he talks about you, God, in the way that he, that he prepared the way for you, the way he called people to repent and believe, and God, the way that he sat himself under you. Father, we pray that we would witness like he did. God, that we would make less of ourselves and more of you. Father, I pray for our hearts, God, as, as we study this text, God, that you would draw us closer to you and strengthen us. So, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your goodness and your love. It's your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. So, starting in, the, in verse 19, we have John the Baptist being questioned, right? The, and it, this wasn't one of those situations where the Pharisees didn't know who this guy was. It wasn't like, okay, there's this random guy baptizing people. Go figure out who this guy is. No, they... They, they knew somewhat of who this man was. It wasn't this, this okay, we're going to send you to walk a far way to figure this out on your own. They had some kind of idea of who this was, but rather they were asking these questions to try to discern who really is this John the Baptist. Because the things that he were doing were kind of raising some eyebrows with these religious leaders who knew the text, that knew what the Old Testament taught about certain things, and now they are trying to discern, is this who we have been hoping for for so long? And so they ask him four different questions. The first they ask him is, who are you? And immediately, John the Baptist knows what they're actually asking, right? Like, they're not asking, well, what's your name? Where are you from? What's your job? Like, you know, what's your, what's your pow and wow for the day, as we'd say in our household? But instead, he knows what the question is. He knows what the very first question they're asking is. And he tells them, I'm not the Christ. And, and John the Baptist did not hold back his identity or who he was, or he, he didn't try to, you know, like, like answer their questions with questions. He was very straightforward. I am not the Christ. I am not the Messiah. So then they ask, okay, well, are you Elijah? And, you know, it, it's interesting that Elijah kind of plays a, a little bit of a role in the, in the new the New Testament Gospels. If you're not familiar, Elijah uh, was a prophet in the Old Testament. And in Malachi, the very last canonical prophet, at the very end, he says that Elijah will return to mark the way of the Lord. And so they're looking for Elijah to return. And so that's why they ask him, well, are you Elijah? And he says, no. Well, you may, if you know your Bible, you might question that a little bit. You go, wait a minute, hold on, hold on. He said no, but then Jesus in another gospel called him uh, an Elijah-like figure. So how does that work? Well, John the Baptist, what he did was, and as Jesus explained in another gospel, that, G, that, that John the Baptist, without being Elijah in person, fulfilled the role of the prophet Elijah. 
that filled that role of uh, what Malachi was stating that, that Elijah would return to mark the way of the Lord. And so John the Baptist serves this role without being Elijah. So he wasn't lying, but it's not exactly what the Pharisees were looking for when they were asking him that question. And so the next question they ask him is a little odd. It says, are you the prophet? Well, notice that it doesn't say, are you a prophet? It says, are you the prophet? So what are they referring to? So this refers to a passage in Deuteronomy 18, 15. And depending on your translation, it'll, it'll say either a prophet or the prophet. But this is what it means. This is what this passage says. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet from, like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And so some thought that this prophet would be like a new Moses that would come onto the scene and have a new exodus that would deliver God's people. So basically just a repeat of what you see all the way back in Exodus, where when the Israelites were delivered from the Egyptians. And so we know, though, that that role isn't, isn't taken up by a different individual. That role is fulfilled by Jesus, that Jesus would come to deliver us, but not from a government, not from a ruling authority, but from the brokenness of our own hearts. And so then they ask, okay, well, if you're none of those things, who are you? We need an answer. We need to know who you are, especially because John the Baptist was baptizing people, and that was not normal at that time. And in each answer, he tells them no. When he finally tells them who he is, what does he do? Does he say, I am John the Baptist, the one that Isaiah talked about. I am great. I am mighty. I'm the first prophet in 400 years. You better listen to me. No. Did he say, I have this huge following behind me and I'm someone of authority. I'm someone you need to listen to. No. What did John the Baptist do? He pointed to Jesus. When asking who he was, when asking his identity, he felt that it was more important to identify who Jesus is and to point them to him rather than to point them to himself. He answers by giving them what Isaiah prophesied about, about all the way back in the Old Testament when Isaiah said that there would be someone in the woods making the way for the Lord. The one that Isaiah prophesied about is John the Baptist. And that's how he answered their question. Is that, yes, he is the one that was prophesied. Yes, he is the one that serves a role in this. But that his focus was not on him, but on the way of the Lord and on who Jesus is. And isn't that something we should be doing with our own witnessing? Right? When, when, we, when we seek to witness about Jesus, when we seek to draw others to him in our witness, who are we drawing people to? Is it our, our own identity? Is it ourselves? Is it what we do? Or do we seek to draw people to the Lord? See, I think sometimes, unfortunately, when we get in this mode of witnessing to people, we sometimes make a bigger deal about us rather than who God is and what he's done in us. So here's kind of an illustration of that. If you've ever been on a mission trip or have ever seen a, a church go on a mission trip, you'll know that there's always pictures taken, right? Like that's just something you do. You, you mark the occasion. It's good for memories. I know that, you know, some of the trips I've gone on, it's been cool to see the pictures that I've come back to. But one of the things that we have to guard ourselves when we do stuff like that is sometimes we care more about a, the photo being taken or about how we're perceived 
in the, in the things that we're doing rather than what we're actually doing. Or we think about these guys who have a lot of huge influence, these pastors who preach to a ton of different people. They have maybe their own show or, or maybe they have a huge following. And it can be tempting for some of them to make more of themselves and their own identity rather than Jesus. And so for us, you know, we may not have these huge masses of people following after us. We may not have huge crowds we speak to daily. We may not have huge numbers of influence, but what we do have is we have our witness. And our witness should not point to our own selves or our own accomplishments or our own identity, but rather should point to Jesus. And so then we have in verses 24 through 28, they kind of ask him, okay, then, then what's qualifying you to baptize people? Then why, why are you doing this? If you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet, then what are you doing baptizing people? Because see, at the time, you know, baptism represents a cleansing of sin. You know, you have the old washed away and they come up as brand new. Now at that time, what baptism was used for was it was used for Gentiles who wanted to convert to Judaism. And so they had to go through this very long, drawn-out process, and then eventually they'd be baptized, but they had to be baptized in a very specific place, and not only that, they baptized themselves. I don't understand how that works, because as a Southern Baptist, I've never seen people baptize themselves. I call that swimming. And so, so they had that process of what they would do, but it was never really pointed at God's children, the children of Israel, God's chosen people. It was, never, it was always targeted at people who needed that that conversion, that wanted to convert to Judaism. But then here's John the Baptist. He's he's calling them to repentance. He's calling them to repent and believe for the kingdom of of heaven is at hand. And he's baptizing them. So that's weird for them. So why is he doing it? Well, John the Baptist was, was baptizing with water to prepare the way for someone much greater. It was symbolic. It was to prepare their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Lord. See, baptism represents this cleansing of sin, and, and John was acknowledging that the children of Israel needed to repent and be washed of their sins. See, normally there's this huge focus on how, oh, the Gentiles are bad because we are the Israelites and God's chosen people, so we are good. But in all reality, John is calling all to repentance saying that all need to repent of their sin for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, for Jesus is coming. And John explains that he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' shoe. That he baptizes with water, but there's someone who's coming who's so much greater, and then he's not even unworthy to untie his shoes. Or he's not even worthy enough to tie, untie his shoes. He says, he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie And if you're familiar with uh, the way disciples worked or the way things worked back then, when you had someone who was a disciple, they would basically do everything for you. They would, they would uh, arrange food. They would arrange travel. It's a lot of the things that, that Jesus' disciples did. But one thing they never did was they never, they never actually you know, untied their shoe or, or washed their feet just because it was, it was just something you didn't do as a disciple. But, but John is saying that Jesus is so great that he's not even worthy to do that. The lowliest of low tasks. But yet, when we look at the other Gospels, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. Jesus did what was the lowliest of low deeds for his disciples, even the one that would betray him later on. And so John the Baptist identifies himself as the one who's bringing a message of hope. 
He baptizes so that people would be preparing their hearts for the coming of the Lord, for the true repentance they needed to have, the cleansing of sin that he brings. Because, listen, John the Baptist, he baptizes with water. But Jesus, he baptizes with the Spirit. One is an external expression, and one is salvation. So then we have Jesus entering the scene the next day. Verses 29 through 34. And it says this, The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. It said, And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. He calls him the Lamb of God. What does that mean? He says, Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Why does he call him a lamb? Who is this man? Well, a lamb back in the Old Testament was used to atone for sin as an offering. A lamb represents something that's pure and and blameless and innocent. And a lamb was used, it kind of had to be the best of the best of what you had as an offering to atone for your sins. We know that the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death and that our sin needed to be atoned for. Our brokenness needed to be paid for. But the reality was God continued to make all these laws for his people to follow and we kept breaking them. God continued to make provisions to provide for his people and to care for them, but continuously over and over and over again, people messed up, they stumbled, they fall. And there's not enough lambs on this earth to atone for the brokenness that's within us. They can never sacrifice enough to have true atonement. Our sin was too great. And so what does God do? Does God just leave us in the dust and go, well, I tried. I gave them laws. They gave me the best of what they had, but it still wasn't enough. What did he do? God loved us so much that he sent his own son to be that sacrificial lamb for us. And so Jesus represents that lamb, the lamb of God, one who is perfect in every way, one who is innocent in every way, one that is blameless. And when Jesus died for us on the cross, he served as an atonement for our sins, one and for all. And, you know, some of you may be thinking, well, what do you mean by sin? I don't, well, I don't, I'm not a bad person. Well, listen, if you've ever lied or stealed or hated someone in your heart or, you know, any, any law of God that you've broken, you've sinned. And it's not only that, too, but there's also a brokenness within us. I mean, listen, we, we live in a world right now where people are richer than they've ever been. Healthcare is more accessible than ever. People are living longer than ever, right? This is a very, very, very comfortable season in this life of the world. But yet, people don't have hope. People are still struggling with brokenness. And they're looking to things to fill the brokenness within them. They look to money. They look to relationships. They look to people. They look to a career. They look to fulfillment. They look to an image and satisfaction. But it's never enough. People can't fix the brokenness within them. They need a Savior. And that brokenness is there because of sin. And we need atonement and we need someone who can help to truly heal the wound that we cannot heal ourselves. And that's where Jesus comes in. And Jesus doesn't require that we mend ourselves before we come to him. He doesn't require that we get all of our ducks in a row or everything in alignment. 
He requires that we turn from our, he asks that we would turn from our sin and believe in him and trust in him with our lives. And then what he does is he, he gives us the Holy Spirit who, who can help us to overcome these, these sinful tendencies that we have. And does that mean we're going to be perfect? No, we're still going to mess up. We're still going to stumble. We're still going to fall. We are covered by the blood of the lamb whose grace is greater than all of our sin. And so then we have the baptism of Jesus. And this of itself is this huge event in, in a lot of the other gospels. And, you know, John the Baptist, or, or uh, John here, not John the Baptist, John who wrote this book, he doesn't necessarily state the details of what happens at the baptism. So here's what happens when Jesus is baptized. First, Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist. He asked to be baptized, and John the Baptist was like, I am not worthy. You should be baptizing me. But yet, John the Baptist still baptizes him. And this is what happens when Jesus is baptized. The first thing is the Holy Spirit descends like a dove and remains on him. Now, why is that significant? Why is this language of the Holy Spirit remains on him so important? One, as we look later on in John, it's how God told John that he would identify the one who would baptize with the Holy Spirit, the one that would save us. Because at this point in the story, John the Baptist had not yet met Jesus in the flesh. Now, you may be thinking, wait, there was a moment where he and Jesus were in the womb and they met each other and he leaped up. Yes, that's correct. But, you know, seeing him with his own eyes, he had not done that yet. But the Holy Spirit remained on him and that identified and affirmed that he is the Son of God who would deliver us from sin. But not only that, the way the Holy Spirit worked in the Old Testament was a bit different than it is now. See, now when we become Christians and we're saved, the Holy Spirit remains in us and is not removed from us. But in the Old Testament, the Spirit moved a little bit differently. The Spirit moved freely, kind of going from one or another, performing certain tasks, doing certain things. It worked a little differently. Like, for example, if you look at uh, Saul and David, you, you'll know the languages that the Spirit left Saul and went to David as David was the next rightful ruler of Israel. And so the Holy Spirit remained on Jesus. And then we also see, not necessarily in this text, but in others, that the Father cries out from heaven, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And whenever we talk about the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one of the places I really like to, to go to to talk about the way that that interaction happens is actually with the baptism of Jesus. Because in the baptism of Jesus, you have Jesus, the Son of God, being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit descending like a dove onto him and the Father declaring from heaven, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. And then John declares after this baptism that he witnesses without dispute of any kind that Jesus is the Son of God. He's declaring to everyone that this person that these religious leaders were asking about, it's not me, it's this guy. It's Jesus, who in him we have salvation, who in him we have the forgiveness of our sins. With him we have true everlasting hope. And so what's the application of all this? What, is, what, do, what do we do with this text? What do we do with John the Baptist's witness? What do we do with this word? Well, the first is, then I think we need to look at our witnessing and ask ourselves, are we pointing to ourselves or are we pointing to Jesus? When we are truly seeking to, to show people who Jesus is through our actions and through our words, 
and sharing the gospel, witnessing to others we love or maybe people we just met? Are we making more of ourselves or is the attention being drawn to Jesus? And I think that we need to guard ourselves from this temptation that we may have to boast in our own accomplishments and deeds. When I was the youth pastor here, we had a mission trip that we partnered with with another church uh, at PC Hinesville. And uh, we, had a, 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 <laughs> we had a meeting in the back room of, of Jim's Razorback Pizza in Fayetteville when they still had that location open. And I remember we had a testimony practice. So we wanted to hear the students share their testimonies. And the reason for that was because I've heard students share testimonies without vetting it first. And some of the things I hear is, is not in a testimony. It's not okay. Like, you know, you'd have some kids who go, well, I was really shy and now I'm really outgoing. And like, that's not a testimony. <laughs> that's just your personality changing. A testimony is that you are talking about the transforming grace of God in your life, that you were broken and now you have been, you have been healed. You, you were lost and now you're found. You were dead in your trespasses. Now you're alive in Christ. It's about your conversion as a Christian, not deeds or not personality changes. And so what we did, not to, not to be mean, but we did so that students would understand what their testimony actually is and how to share them. As something that we had to continuously guard these students against is whenever they would talk about their own accomplishments and boast in themselves more than anything else, right? We had a couple of students that would just talk about how, well, you know, I've done this with my life and I've done this and I've done that. And we're just like, yeah, but where's Jesus in that? Because here's what happens when you have someone who doesn't believe in the Lord and you are witnessing to them and sharing your testimony. If all it is is about what you do, then all they're going to think is, okay, if I do those things, if I go to church more, read my Bible more, then I will be saved. But that's not it. True conversion comes from trusting in the Lord and giving yourself over to Him. So the first point of application would be to be careful with your witness. That your witness should focus on Jesus and not yourself. The next question is, Kind of, kind of a, an interesting one for me as a Southern Baptist pastor to ask you, have you been baptized <laughs> the right way? <laughs> and here's what I mean by that. I mean that when we look at baptism in Scripture, we see it as a full immersion, as an image of you were, you were dead in your trespasses, you were raised alive in Christ after you've been saved. Now, there's nothing in the water of a baptistry that automatically heals you of your sin. That's not the way it works. See, John the Baptist declared that Jesus would baptize with the Spirit. That is what saves you. But the baptism with the water is this external representation of what's happened within you. So the question I would have is, church, have you been baptized? And if not, what are you waiting for? Listen, I've, I've served with a lot of churches who've kind of done baptism differently. Some people would wait to do it on a baptism Sunday. Some would wait to do it at a river. Some would kind of do it whenever. But I think sometimes we focus more on the actual way we get baptized or uh, not way, but we focus on the location or we focus on what it looks like in our preferences rather than just doing what is obedient to God. And whenever we become a Christian, one of the first things that we are called to do is to be baptized. I mean, I mean, it's, it's told us in scripture that we are to repent and be baptized. But we do so not because we want people to, to look at us or we want to look good or because we want to do it in a river like Jesus was baptized, but rather we get baptized because we want to show 
the church and affirm that we have been dead in our trespasses and we are alive in Christ. This representation of a heart change has happened in us. And I think some of us, maybe we've been Christians for a while and we're just embarrassed. Maybe we're just embarrassed that we haven't been baptized yet. And listen, can I just tell you, don't be embarrassed. Because we rejoice in the fact that anyone would want to externally show the change that has happened within them. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing. And so my last question for you this morning, a point of application is where does your hope lie? Where is your hope in this life and for this world? Is it in yourself? Is it in a career or retirement plan or finances? Is it in a governing authority? Who is it in? Because I can tell you that anything that you have your hope in that's not Jesus is going to fade away and it's going to disappoint you. When I was in premarital counseling with Victoria, one of the things that our uh, premarital counselor just hammered into our heads was that your spouse is not your savior. Your hope, your dream, everything that you long for and want does not need to be in a single person, even your spouse. Because at some point, that person may hurt you or disappoint you because they are a sinful human being. And I think sometimes we do that. We put our hope in people or we put it in a career or we put it in money and all those things are fleeting and fading and can change like that. Your life could change with a phone call today and you have no control over it and there's nothing you can do to stop it. But here's what I can tell you. That Jesus promises us a life beyond this one. That no matter what happens in this world, one, that he will walk with us and give us the strength to endure anything. But the second is that we can have eternal life with him forever. That this life is temporary. That the hurts and the pains and the hopelessness of this world will fade away. And that when we are no longer here, we get to be with him forever in heaven. In a place that's perfect. And a place where there's no more suffering, there's no more pain. And where we have hope in him. It's why the Apostle Paul was able to be imprisoned and mocked and ridiculed because he knew that this life was temporary and that his hope lied in Jesus, who at the end of his life, he would get to be with forever. And that there was nothing in this world that could take him away from that. And so church, my question for you is, where does your hope lie? Is it in the things of this world? Is it in yourself? Or is it in the one that actually can give you hope in Jesus? Will you pray with me as we have our time of invitation? Lord, I thank you for today. I thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. God, we're grateful that that in our sinfulness, in our brokenness, God, that you provided a way for us to be reconciled with you. God, to have hope in this world, God, that even if everything around us crumbles, God, whether it be relationships or finances or security or jobs or whatever it may be, God, that even in the greatest seasons of loss, Father, that we still have hope in you. A hope that we are delivered from our sins. A hope that we have life beyond this one. A hope that you walk with us in every dark season we walk through. And Father, we pray, God, for the people in this room. Father, for anyone that doesn't know you, God, who's never 
repented of their sin. God, or they've never known you personally. God, or they've never trusted you. Father, I pray that they would trust you. God, that they would, that they would ask for forgiveness of their sins. God, that they would seek to be reconciled with you. God, that they would seek to know what it means to live a life in obedience to you. Father, I pray that you would work in their hearts. God, I pray for also anyone in this room that's never been baptized. God, that they would step out in faith and God, that they would follow after what, the, what God, what you call is obedience. Father, that we would seek to show externally, God, what has happened within. And so, Father, I pray for that and I pray for our church, God, that we may be able to share this message of hope with others. And God, that our focus would not be on ourselves or our own deeds or our own accomplishments, but Father, on you and what you've done in us and through us. And so, Father, I pray for this time of invitation, God, as we have a time to respond. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen.